Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. This, the beautiful time, the time of wingspans, leaps, and open doors, of the heedless headlong flow from here to there. This, the time before thought, the world arriving not as lists or hearkening back or future tense, but as breath-filled music, cantar, sing. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Elizabeth Graver about her fifth novel, Cantica, in which she tells the fictionalized story of her Sephardic grandmother's journey from Istanbul to Barcelona with a stop in Cuba on the way to New York. The story begins with Rebecca's childhood in Istanbul, where life is beginning to get harder for Jews. The family fears Rebecca's brothers being sent into the army and leave along with much of the Jewish community. They end up in Barcelona, where a husband is found for Rebecca, but he's physically and mentally sickened from exposure to mustard gas. This is a rich and detailed story of a strong woman who surmounts challenge after challenge on three different continents in many different languages. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. You write that you started interviewing your grandmother in 1985, but you only started writing the book two decades later. What happened in between? What made you come back to it? Wow. What happened in between was a lot of other books and a lot of life. Um, And I think that it's a little hard for me to reconstruct. I I knew way back then, I was only 21, that she had a really interesting story and that I was close to her and that I wanted the experience of recording her both to collect and save her story. She was getting quite old at that point and actually to have the experience of her talking to me and knowing that I knew that her story was important because I knew she thought it was, but there was often a sense with her of kind of nobody knows what I've been through, you know, that she had this big past and never really sat down. She would talk about it in little slivers, but never really talked it through. So I made those recordings. And I think even at the time I thought, huh, I could write something, but honestly, I was pretty intimidated. I mean, you know, she was from Turkey. She was, um, quite religious. I was raised very culturally Jewish, but secular. She spoke, multiple languages I didn't speak. Um, so it, it felt like a, a big subject that on the one hand would take me 
really far from what I knew and on the other hand felt kind of risky in terms of how close to home it was and that she was my family member. So for multiple reasons, none of them really articulated so clearly at the time, but I think I sort of tucked the tapes away, but treasured them. And then she died a few years later. And I did write a little bit about her along the way. I have an essay about her. I have a poem. I think she would show up. And even in more oblique ways, like I have a character in my first novel, Unraveling, who works with fabric in ways that are kind of reminiscent of her. But in around 2014, I had finished my last novel, so my fourth novel, called The End of the Point, and it was a big book really about kind of the intersections of small lived daily lives with with big history and it was set over a span of time and it was about a family um and loosely inspired by a real place where my husband's family had had um land and i think doing that book gave me confidence i loved doing the research i loved interviewing people and kind of finding some alchemy between research and fiction and imagination and real life and i was also at that point very aware of the generation above me so my mother and my uncles um several other people who were inspired characters in the book had already died but being alive but getting older and again wanting the experience of talking to them gathering their stories while i still could and of having them know that i was writing this book so it's an interesting book for me in that it's been both very personal and you know very much a novel and I was also I think in around 2014 and increasingly as time went on aware of what was happening now in the world with mm-hmm. the refugee crisis then the Trump presidency just the, the ways in which this story of immigration although it said at a different time had you know rise of anti-semitism had had echoes with where we were now in ways that made it feel kind of urgent even though it's not set now mm-hmm You also write, quote, I encountered poetry and pathos in the tapestry of a vanishing culture and in Ladino, the language of the Sephardic Jews. Can you say more about that? Sure. So Ladino, if if people who are listening might not know, because lots of people don't, um, is the language that when the Jews were expelled from Spain, during the Spanish Inquisition and in the years pre- leading up to it, um, it's the language that developed in exile. So it, it and it's the language that when Sephardic Jews, including my ancestors, went into the Ottoman Empire, formed as a kind of version of old Spanish because it was Spanish that you know stayed intact in certain ways because it wasn't still in in Spain where it was changing faster mixed with various other things like Hebrew and Turkish and Greek, French eventually. So it's a really interesting language. It's a language that has some written forms, both liturgical and there's a little bit of kind of newspapers and fiction and stuff written in it, but mostly it was a language of the home, of songs, of women, because at least in my grandparents' era, they were both from Turkey, um, they weren't educated in Ladino, they were educated in French. And so it's a language that has, it, it's actually listed as a dying language by UNESCO or whoever keeps these tallies. Um, and yet, 
it's a language that's extraordinarily rich in terms of the window it provides into culture. It's a beautiful language. It has weird spellings. I borrowed my title from it. The word cantica with a K means song. And it's also, luckily for me, a language like Yiddish or Gaelic, Irish, some other languages right now that has experienced a little bit of a resurgence. So there are some online forums and classes and it's now being taught at SUNY Binghamton and Tufts where I sat in on a class, Harvard Divinity School. So it felt like a kind of treasure and, and something really interesting to learn about, but also something that I wanted to share with readers who may not have encountered it. Yiddish is much more well known as you know, a Jewish language, and there, there actually are others too. Ah, so interesting. Um, I don't know if you're keeping this a secret, but is it okay to ask um, whose child are you of your uh, grandparents? <laughs> I'm Suzanne's child. Okay. And she doesn't have a huge role in the book for reasons, you know, she did have a bigger role at one point. I cut things out, but um, yeah, so the 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 youngest, you know, there were there are two daughters, Luna and Suzanne. There's they're half sisters, and I'm Suzanne's daughter. Okay. And I, did use, I did use real names, so you know, and the book is dedicated to my mom, Suzanne, and my grandmother Rebecca. So none of it's really secret. Okay. I know um, that you said you st you started with your grandmother's story, but later ended up imagining the inner lives of your great grandfather, your great grandma Alberto, your great grandmother Sultana, and even your step your step aunt Luna. Whose story drew you most in? Well, that's such an interesting, complicated question. Rebecca is the thread that runs throughout the entire book. And so in the most basic way, it's her story. But as I started to kind of dive deeper, I did not expect to go into a character based on my great grandfather's point of view. I never met him. My mother never met him. That, But he kind of asserted himself in a way. And I think partly I became really interested in the way a lot of the things I was exploring in the book around migration, making a new life, bodies, what it means to live inside a body, what it means to age, what it means to be homesick or to find joy in new things were experienced differently across different people. So across gender, across age, across ability, disability. Luna has cerebral palsy, so she lives inside her body very differently than Rebecca, who is a dressmaker and a beauty and a little narcissistic, I think, and kind of uses her body both for survival and as ways to kind of manipulate. So I don't know that I could pick out, it's, it's really in some ways the intersections that interest me the most. Mm -hmm. um, I would get really involved in anyone's character's point of view when I was there, but I was really interested in how looking at the world through Alberta's eyes made me understand Rebecca a bit differently, particularly Rebecca and Luna, who were kind of in conflict a lot, how the two of them both, how they had a kind of push and pull. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know that there were Jews in Turkey since at least the 15th century. What does Rebecca know? What did she know about why her family lives in Turkey, lived in Turkey? So my understanding in some of this comes from my family, but some of it just comes from 
I don't know, growing up, I'm half Sephardic, half Ashkenazi, but growing up with these stories and also reading a lot is that everybody kind of knew that a large portion of that population had been expelled from Spain and had been, quote, welcomed by the by the Sultan with open arms when when Spain kicked them out. It's, of course, more complicated, like there were what, what are called Romanoid Jews who'd been there much longer than that. There were Ashkenazi Jews in Turkey, but not nearly as many. But I think that, you know, if you look at say for example there's a synagogue in istanbul called the arita synagogue and the the ark at the middle of it is shaped like a ship and it's the ship that took the jews from spain to turkey there's a lot of ships even etched into doorways so this sense of having been expelled having retained a lot of customs like language and and you know it's not the same language but it's got lots of spanish in it um and food and dance and stories so there's a richness and a strong connection to spain and at the same time it was a slaughterhouse right it, you know jews were killed jews were forced to convert and and expelled so um i think it's a really complicated relationship which in my novel actually becomes almost bizarrely literal because in real life and in my novel the family moves to spain and it's a question of kind of are they going back like what does that mean they haven't been there for 400 years they don't you know and yet it is a country that they have deep ties to yeah um your grandmother's Sephardic Jewish identity, customs, and practice were part, a huge part of her family and even the family your mother grew up in. I, I wonder how much of it continued down through the family, despite the upheaval and the moving to different countries. My grandmother was interesting in that she was very, very much herself and very full of her own culture and, and practices, although also quite fluid and open and curious about other people. But, you know, for me, the way I witnessed it growing up, it was often a kind of sense of difference between my two grandparents, because my other grandmother was Ashkenazi. And most of the other Jews I knew, except for my own family, were Ashkenazi. So I, I've, you know, my grandma Becca, Rebecca in the novel, ate entirely different food. Um, she ate a lot of the food I love, Mediterranean food, you know, feta cheese and phyllo dough. And she taught me how to make little um, spanakopita type pastries and things. Um, but it wasn't just that. I mean, she also, and it's hard to tease out, and I always want to be really careful not to generalize about cultures, but she had a very different relationship from my other grandmother to kind of her body, to sexuality, to how open she was. She she seemed very Mediterranean, um, almost mm -hmm. more than Sephardic. I mean, she was very Jewish, but she also was just kind of she liked the sun she loved to swim she was she knew how to swim i don't think my other grandmother could even swim um you know she was from a kind of um polish uh immigrant family and grew up in the bronx um so it's a little hard for me to to say but and then my grandparents my rebecca and sam would speak 
over my head in some mix of Ladino and, and Spanish. They had also, he lived in Cuba and Mexico. She had lived in Spain. But I know from the birthday cards and things that she sent me that I still have, a lot of the spellings are Ladino. So there'll be a K instead of a, um, instead of a C, things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Uh, when Rebecca's young, she doesn't really understand completely, but in retrospect, she understood that her father was burning through the family fortune. She understood that he had been married before, and somehow somebody understood they, there was something about him not being a really good person because of the way what happened. Could you say more about that? You said not being a really good person? Yes, he felt, you. Uh, I quote, he knows in his heart that he is not a good man. That's interesting, because I'm not sure I would say that. I think he's a flawed man who has definitely made mistakes. I'm not sure I would say he's not a good man, but that's... Um- that was your quote that he said he knew it in his heart. Okay, so he thinks that. I don't think I he think thinks that. that. Yeah, but, he's very he's very guilt-ridden, definitely. Right, right. And then what did what does Rebecca think? I think Rebecca does not think he's not a good man. I think she loves him, but she's also quite angry with him at different points because she wonders, you know, it's kind of a question did they have to leave his brother stays in turkey lots of people left social class is a big topic for her because she grew up very privileged and then they lost everything and i i think it's a question in the book and from what i can glean was a question in my family as to how much of that was wider forces and there were plenty of kind of unfair taxes and factories being requisitioned during World War One and anti-Semitism. And there were all kinds of things that were making the Jewish population in Turkey at the time f- flee. But at the same time, they didn't all flee, right? So I think the question of what were his failings, he's a kind of tender-hearted man. He likes to garden. He likes to gamble. Um, he's got a lot of weaknesses, but he's also kind of poetic and loving and in some ways sort of has the wrong life for himself. He would have done better if he, he has all these children to support and things. So I think she, my sense of it is that she actually quite loves him, um, and is fairly forgiving of him and, and kind of conscious. He's much older than her mother and she's conscious of his frailties, although at times 
she's also angry at him. He also, at, at some key points that I won't give away, makes the right decisions. So really in terms of her and getting her out of Spain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's he's smart. Um, he does dumb things, but he's he's smart and he he's frail and he loves his family. He, he He's a lot of different things, which is part of what made me really compelled by him as I started to draw his character. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca is then married off to Lewis, but nobody tells her that he fought for the Turkish army and was exposed to mustard gas. Can you say more about him? Yeah, so the, there's a lot of chunks of the novel where I made up vast amounts. The, the parts about Luis, her husband, first husband, I had a lot of information because probably 45 minutes of one of the recordings I did with her, she told me that story. Um, and so as she told it, there were very few Jewish single men in Barcelona in the 1920s. And there was no question in her family, but that she had to marry someone Jewish and she was getting older. So she married him really out of a sense of kind of, I guess this is slim pickings and Mm -hmm. he he seems nice enough. Like, I guess I'll just do it. Um, And with some pressure from from her family. Um, And then he turned out to be a mix of kind of have a lot of health troubles that included some psychological troubles from mustard gas exposure, um, but also, you know, ran off a lot and just wasn't a stable person at all. And so she ended up having to really make her own way there with two small sons and um, earn a living. And she goes out and finds work as a dressmaker. So it was a kind of trial by fire, not not at all a, a good first marriage. And I was interested, um, I include, as you know, photos in the book that I have these wedding photos of them. And at first glance, they look quite lovely. They're taken in nice studios and everybody's well-dressed. But if you look closely, Rebecca's staring over his shoulder and he looks very stiff and there's something waxen and almost creepy about it. So I was very interested in, in how the photos both revealed and lied and kind of set things up in ways that almost created a a bit of a counter narrative. Yeah. Why does Rebecca meet Sam, who was to become your grandfather, in Havana? Because at the time, um, there was an immigration law, a major immigration legislation passed in 1924 that that kept out a lot of people, including Jews and people from Turkey. So one way, and you know, I know you spoke to Aaron Hamburger, whose wonderful novel Hotel Cuba um, is has similar uh, territory. One way that immigrants, lots of Jewish immigrants would try to get into the US was by going through Cuba, because there were various ways that if you stayed in Cuba for a year, you could get in. Or in the case of Rebecca, if you were married to someone with American citizenship, you could get in. So she is told by her sister, as things are getting pretty bad in Spain with the Spanish Civil War and also Hitler rising to power in Europe, um, that she should get out of Spain and that there's a man who they have a connection to from childhood, um, who ha- is a is a um, widower and needs a wife, and that she should go meet him in Cuba, decide if he's good enough for her to marry, and then if she marries him, she can then 
enter the U.S. as his wife. Wow, I loved the part in uh, Havana. It was it was fascinating. Um, can you say more about Luna, Sam's daughter? Nobody seems to describe what's wrong. Did they not have uh, a diagnosis of cerebral palsy back then? And uh, what happened to her? In real life, what happened to her? Yeah. Uh, so I think they did know, I certainly grew up knowing she had cerebral palsy, but I think at the time there were some other terms for it, although it, it may have, there may have been a medical name for it. There probably was at that point. They called it spasticity and some other things, but um, she was a pretty extraordinary woman. She she was born with quite severe cerebral palsy. And when Rebecca in the novel and in real life came to the U.S. as her stepmother, she was really unable to do much of anything. She couldn't use a toilet. She couldn't walk. Her speech was very hard to decipher. And in real life, my grandmother kind of got to work and had a very good sense of, of what to do, a kind of instinctual sense, but also would go to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital where Luna had a very good doctor and kind of watch and imitate. So it was a conflicted relationship because she was she pushed Luna really hard and she was the stepmother and there were all kinds of dynamics that I explored in the book. In real life, Luna, you know, went to college for a while. She worked for the city of New York. She had two marriages. She had a child. Um, it wasn't all a happy story. Her child died tragically as a young adult. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of suffering any in her story, but she was an extraordinarily resilient, gutsy person. And I was quite close to her and she was very interested in writing. And at the end of her life in retirement in Florida, she was a freelance writer for the local, I think it was the Sun Sentinel um, paper and wrote a little bit about her childhood, but also became a real celebrator of disability, disability rights and um, would write about events in the community or she went on some Grand Canyon tour for disabled people and wrote an article about it. So it meant a lot to me to try to give voice to her story, although sadly she wasn't alive when I started the book and I would have rather she could have given full voice to her own story. Um, mm. and, but, she did, she, but she did a bit, you know, so she was she, she and she got some big awards from the Cerebral Palsy Foundation towards the end of her life. So she she was really, you know, this kid of immigrants um, at a time where there was very little available in terms of um, in terms of therapies and very little understanding of of how to work with children with cerebral palsy. Although it was kind of starting to emerge as something with some progress, but um, but. She she was pretty incredible, and my grandmother was pretty extraordinary in the way she worked with her when she was little. It, it was very moving that the whole story, the whole book was lovely, and I, I have already recommended it to people who I know love this sort of the story and Sephardic history and immigration stories. Um, what are you working on next? I'm always a little reluctant to talk about what I'm working on in the early stages. I've been very Whoa. busy running around with this book, but I'm I'm playing a little bit with my father's childhood and what I he's he's no longer alive, but I'm I'm thinking about writing something that may involve 
him and might be nonfiction. I, I like to do different things with each book. So um, we'll see. It's it's early, but I'm, I'm reading a lot. And I'm also having great conversations about this book with about Cantica and, you know, performing with musicians. And so I'm still kind of inside that world a bit, but mm. also venturing into into a kind of connected but different one. All exciting. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. It's just been a pleasure, Elizabeth Graver. Thanks for being such a wonderful reader and for your great show. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Elizabeth Graver about her newest novel, Cantica. Hope you all have a juicy book to cuddle up with today. And always, happy reading. <laughs>